For Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, welcome to Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Well, every week is Education Week here at the podcast, but <laughs> this week was Education Week at the State House, a really busy week for us as uh, the legislature, and specifically the legislature's budget committee really started to dig into uh, budget requests for K-12 and higher education because it's only 60% of the state budget. Why would we want to you know, dig into those numbers, right? So a big week in JFAC, uh, a lot of important uh, presentations, a lot of important discussions. So let's uh, start right there. Yeah, let's start. Uh, you want to start with Superintendent of Public Instruction, Sherry Ybarra's the K-12 public school budget request. Sure, we that were both was, there on Thursday morning. So that was let's Thursday. Catch up there. That feels to me like one of the biggest hearings of the year, and that's always the case uh, in front of the Joint Budget Committee. Packed house. In fact, I, yeah. I looked over my shoulder and saw all the seats and the benches behind me were taken, and uh, people were standing in the doorways against the wall. Um, but right out of the gate, I mean, I guess at this point, lawmakers have a decision to make. Superintendent Ibarra gave her budget request, and it's a little bit different than Governor Brad Little's budget request in some key areas. And uh, we'll get into that, but yeah, there's some there, big decisions there to There are make. a lot of decision points. You know, as, as Superintendent Ibarra went through her budget request, and we've written about this, and we've written about Governor Little's budget request, but when you start to see it on the screen, yeah. and you see the, the differences between the Ibarra request and the Little requests, it's pretty stark. I mean, it's not just the numbers difference, and we get into the raw number difference, but there's a difference in how... Ibarra would like to see more money put into teacher pay, Correct. Uh, more of an emphasis on trying to provide pay raises to veteran teachers, whereas uh, Governor Little is talking about boosting the minimum salary and Correct. trying to take another run at uh, starting pay. Um, big difference in terms of how you would fund uh, school security or what you would do on the school security issue, which we'll definitely want to talk about more here. Um but just a lot of, lot of other line items from uh, technology in the classroom to uh, mastery-based education. Just a lot of differences between her budget priorities and the governor's budget priorities. And I've started to realize as I went through the spreadsheets on Thursday, the differences are probably even more pronounced than I realized originally. Yeah. And, and we had yeah, seen I, Superintendent really... Ybarra's budget request um, Last September, uh, we saw kind of the cover sheet and the spreadsheet. We saw Governor Little kick off the legislative session earlier this year with his budget request. But when we put them side by side in those spreadsheets, like you mentioned, uh, it really became obvious to me how significant the differences are. So let's start at the top. Uh, right now, for all intents and purposes, uh, Superintendent Ibarra is asking for a budget increase that would amount to 8% if mm-hmm. nothing else changes. Yeah. Uh, she's asking for an 8% budget increase overall for state general fund spending for K-12 schools. She outlined about a $1.9 billion spending plan for the 2020 budget year on Thursday. Contrast that 8% that the superintendent is seeking with Governor Little's request, which is about 6.1%, even with the latest enrollment growth right. figured in. Mm-hmm. Quite a difference. The top two priorities are the same. Both of them want, uh, as expected, to pay about $48 million for the fifth and final year of teacher salary raises and benefits under the career letter. That's the widespread salary law passed in 2015. Both of them support 
paying for that final year of raises. And then from there, the plans kind of diverge. Right, right. You know, it's the question of what do you do above and beyond the career ladder, because both Ibarra and Little do want to go above and beyond the career ladder. But that's when you start to talk about uh, Little's proposal for a $40,000 yep. minimum salary, Ibarra's proposal, which would cost quite a bit more. $27.8 million, yep. To increase salaries at the high end of the scale. And that, that does go to a concern that we've heard for years over the career ladder, that most of the money is sort of front-loaded into the beginning uh, teacher salaries. It's front-loaded into the low end of the salary scale. It doesn't do a whole lot uh, for salaries for veteran teachers. So a pretty stark difference in priorities between Ibarra and Little. I'll just tick off a couple here, and then we have some areas we're really going to focus on. Some other differences, uh, Superintendent Ibarra wants $3 million in new funding for classroom technology. Governor Little recommends keeping existing funding levels flat. Ibarra is seeking almost $15 million in new funding for discretionary spending, half of which she would send uh, for health insurance costs for school districts. Governor Little does not recommend a funding increase above and beyond current discretionary funding levels. And then when it comes to literacy, uh, Superintendent Ybarra recommends no increase in the literacy initiative that is designed to help the youngest struggling readers in grades K through 3. Ybarra recommends no increase. Meanwhile, Governor Little is asking for a $13.2 million increase to really beef up the literacy program. He's almost couched that as his early childhood education plan, even though it affects the existing uh, in this case, K through three uh, levels at the elementary it, school. Exactly. And it kind of goes to Little's priorities come into very stark detail when you look at his budget as opposed to Ibarra's budget. Little's budget holds the line on a lot of education line items, partly because of concern about revenue coming yep. in. But Little does try to uh, fold a lot of money into that literacy program. That's clearly uh, his top priority in terms of K-12 initiatives this year. There is no disputing that when you look at the numbers. Whereas Ibarra wants to put a little bit of extra money into a lot of different programs, it's maybe a little bit more far-reaching in terms of where she would want to put money, and obviously she's trying to put more money into the education system or proposing to do that. Yeah. Two more that I want to focus on before we move on. Uh, Let's start with school safety and school security. This is a a big difference uh, between Superintendent Ybarra, who has proposed about a $19 million supplemental funding request, meaning she wants this money for the current budget year that we're already about six months into. She's asked for $19 million for legislators to open the current budget to fund her Keep Idaho Students Safe proposal. This is a grant-driven program uh, to spend about $18, $18.5 million dollars out of that to uh, grants for school districts that they could use uh, for school safety and security purposes. And this is, we've talked about this before, there was a little bit of a rocky rollout last summer. There's never been a legislative hearing on the KISS proposal and with state revenues continuing to fall millions of dollars below projections. Um, We talked to a handful of legislators after the budget hearing they're interested in school safety. They're interested in the ongoing work that the Office of School Safety and Security is already doing. Um, but we talked to a couple of legislators who said, in this budget climate, that's a really big request this year. Another uh, <laughs> legislator said, as for KISS, not this year. Right. For all practical purposes, we didn't even have a legislative hearing on KISS uh, yesterday, uh, Thursday, in the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, because very telling. 
Ibarra did talk about mm -hmm. her proposal. She did try to uh, walk the committee through it. There was not a single question from the 20 members of JFAC about the school safety proposal, which tells you, you know, very clearly that this is not happening. And Governor year. Little has also said he would not fund uh, this program. Yeah, we know how this movie's going to end. And, you know, when I when I spoke to Rick Youngblood, who is the House co-chair yep. of JFAC, uh, Republican from Nampa, he said that he'd sat in on a webinar uh, about the KISS proposal about a month ago, and the State Department of Education has done a couple of these webinars. I, I sat in on one myself a few months back. And he is he wants to know more about this, and I think he sort of said that he kind of left the webinar not feeling like he knows enough about the proposal yeah. and how it would work. So that's part of the, uh, you know, it's not happening this year message that, that came from JFAC. So, you know, Ibarra touted the KISS proposal in a guest opinion that she uh, sent out this week that we published at idohednews.org, I think on Tuesday. Uh, she mentioned the KISS proposal in her uh, news release on Thursday after the, the JFAC meeting. But let's make no mistake, th this proposal's not going anywhere this year. That was very clear for, and, from JFAC. And because of the way that she laid it out as a one-time supplemental funding request with no carryover spending authority, we don't believe it will be happening in the current year, 2019. We don't believe it will be happening in the 2020 budget year either uh, because it's not in that budget request. So the earliest, potentially, the earliest that we could see this would be about the 2021 budget year, which right, feels right. like a long ways off. Right. And, and if, yeah, I mean, to get a little bit into inside baseball and not knowing exactly what Ibarra's strategy is what SDE, what, what her team's strategy is on this. That proposal is currently written, is currently baked into her budget proposal, is not going to go anywhere. So in order to make any progress on school safety, you'd have to almost come at this with a different proposal. And right now, this legislature, uh, this budget committee is uh, pretty nervous about an outlay of money into new programs. I mean, you know, Regardless of how this was rolled out, regardless yep. of how it was timed and how it was presented by Ibarra going back to last year, this is a legislature that's a little bit concerned about uh, overcommitting funds for any new program. So I, I think that it's uh, you know it, it's it's dead in its current form, and I don't see any sense right now from Ibarra's team that they're going to come back with any kind of counter proposal. So. For all practical purposes, I, I think we've probably heard about the last of the KISS proposal for this year. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, one more. Uh, you took a closer look at the superintendent's uh, proposal for mastery-based education. We've covered this a lot. Mastery is kind of this idea of personalized student learning where they would advance literally once they master a subject, not based on, say, spending a year in class and avoiding failing. Seat time would go away. Students would move at their own pace. This is a big proposal for Superintendent Ibarra, but one that uh, did not advance out of the Senate Education Committee last year under an attempt to expand the program. What is Superintendent Ibarra recommending with mastery this year, and what is the governor saying? Well, she wants two things. And uh, in JFAC, she talked about both. She wants to double the amount of money that the state puts into this pilot program. They call it an incubator program, yep. but you know that's you know synonymous. Uh, she wants to double the number of incubator projects you have around the state, you know, doing the mastery program. 
and that would cost an additional $1.4 million. So double the budget uh, from $1.4 million to $2.8 million. And what she also wants to do is uh, run a companion bill that would lift this cap yeah. on the number of incubators. Now, that was a bill that came before uh, the Senate Education Committee a year ago and was voted down almost unanimously. I think it got through the House, but it, it, it died a pretty... Uh, a pretty pronounced uh, death on the uh, on the floor. Of the and Senate if I Education remember, that Committee. was that was a week where a couple of the superintendent's proposals yeah, died yeah. within quick succession. Yeah. That was a pretty rough week uh, for the superintendent. It, it was looking back on it, but she's not like oh the mastery right. proposal. And like I say, her budget calls for a, a doubling of the mastery budget. Little in his budget as he did with a lot of these education line items, wanted to hold the line. There was some interesting discussion in JFAC about this. This was an issue that did get discussed. It did, yeah. As opposed to the school safety plan. Um, Scott Syme, a new member of JFAC, uh, kind of took uh, Ibarra's side on this and, and said, you know, this seems like a program that... Uh, he put Little's budget people on the spot and said, why are you not funding this He increase? referenced a waiting list that the superintendent had mentioned about he, districts saying... We want to participate in this incubator program, he this pilot program. It. Ibarra referenced it. I, I want to do some more reporting about that waiting list. I, you know, yep. there's more. We've requested we follow up. And I have it. I just have not had a chance to kind of dig into it and figure out, uh, you know, and, and do some follow up reporting. That stay tuned. We will get to more of that about the waiting list. But that was part of Ibarra's case for expanding the mastery program. She says we've got schools that want to get on board here. You know, I've got. State superintendents from other states calling me, asking how they can get started in their states. And she says, this is what students want, too, because they want to have more control over their education. That was part of the case. And, and Syme really latched onto that waiting list mm -hmm. and really kind of put Little's budget folks on the spot and said, why aren't you funding this? Uh, the message from uh, Gideon Tolman, who works in the budget division for the governor, was basically a uh, little likes master. He's said that before. He's supported the idea. But uh, Little would like a new education task force to have a chance to look at this, take a fresh look at it. And he wants to put more money into other education priorities. It's and, priorities and, in, a, and, in a tricky and, budget and, year. And Tolman didn't mention what those priorities are. But again, going back to what we talked about before, it's pretty clear that Little's top education priority is not mastery, but it's the early literacy program. That kind of drew a, a rebuke from Siam, who said, well, I can't imagine what's a higher priority than preparing uh, workers for, uh, preparing graduates for going out into the workforce, and he thinks mastery is a, a path forward in that regard. So Abar did get some, some backup on the mastery issue. But again, um, we talked to a couple of the key JFAC members after the, the hearing. We talked to both Wendy Horman and Rick Youngblood. Horman is the vice chair of the budget committee, and as you all know, she's basically the lead writer of education budgets. And what she wants to see is a report that's due in the next couple of weeks looking at the mastery program so far. This is one of several reports that JFAC asked for last year to kind of dig into some of these line items and you know get a progress report, get a sense of how these things are working. She really wants to see that before she withholds judgment, before she you know, passes judgment on the uh, on the proposal. Wants she wants to see to a return on investment. She wants to see a return on investment until she sees that she's withholding judgment. When I asked Youngblood about the budget differences, um, he said, I think the governor's budget is just fine. Yeah. 
and kind of, you know, smiled and said, is that enough? And I was like, no, I think I got your point. So there's the chair of the House uh, Budget Committee saying, you know, I don't really see the need to double the budget for masters. So I think in the end, a bar has got an uphill battle on this uh, front as well. Yeah. I did speak with her afterwards. Uh, you were there as well. She mm-hmm. seemed happy uh, with her performance. She spoke for about an hour and a half. She had command of the issues in her line items. Uh, she spoke with confidence. Several lawmakers praised how thorough the presentation was. But it's a tricky budget year, and there may not be uh, uniform agreement on some of the policy positions, and so it could be uh, tough for the superintendent. But I think she was proud of her performance. And I think that if a lot of what is in the governor's budget goes forward, she will be happy. She has praised the governor's budget request already. She would said that we're on the same page when it comes to teacher salaries. And so uh, I think that she can be happy with a lot of options potentially that would come out of JFAC, even if it doesn't mean the school safety program this year and remains to be seen on mastery, probably too early to say at this exact moment. But even if she didn't get those, I think she could be happy if Uh, There were big raises uh, built into the uh, teacher salary and benefit program, and some of these other things went forward. I think she could be happy with that. She's expressed um, her fondness for Governor Little, how they've worked together for years. And so I I, I think, uh, you know, reading the tea leaves a little bit here, I think she can still be happy with what potentially will come out at the end of the day. And I think she sounded somewhat resigned to the fact that uh, it doesn't look good for funding of a school safety plan this year. She talked about the difficulty yep. of this budget year and talked about, you know, keeping the keeping the conversation going and keeping the issue going. So I sense that she realizes that the KISS proposal as written is not going to go anywhere this year. We'll see if any kind of a reboot comes along here, either this legislative session or next. Yeah, uh, be hard to see it this legislative session because it's not in her 2020 budget request. That uh, was what she presented already, and so I don't know how that would happen, but uh, who knows? I've been surprised in the past. A lot of information there. If you want to head to the homepage, IdahoEdNews.org, you and I both had articles looking at the budget presentations regarding K-12 Definitely worth your time, and this will be something that JFAC will be working on in the coming weeks, and as that education budget does come together, we will have all the details, but that was not the only important education budget hearing. They call it Education Week for a reason. As you mentioned, uh, you heard from the higher education uh, institutions, colleges and universities, particularly our new presidents. Um, What were some of the themes? What were you hearing? There were a couple of recurring themes. Uh, When you have all eight of the university and college presidents come before JFAC, you you hear a lot of the same concerns. You hear a lot of the same priorities. A couple of really jumped out at me that I did write about this week. Um, It started off Monday with the community college presidents talking about the explosion in dual credit. And we've talked about this so much over the past few years, the, the, you know, huge influx of students in high school who are taking college-level classes, taxpayer-funded. But that's the rub. The taxpayer funding for these uh, dual-credit classes comes to $65 per credit hour. That's about half the price of what you or I would pay if we were taking a uh, class at CWI at the College of Western Idaho or or really any of the other community colleges around the state. So Burke Landon, the president of CWI, talked about how this is really a challenge for the colleges and a crisis because they're losing money on every uh, 
dual credit class that they're offering to high school students. And this coincided with a report that came out uh, from the state board that calculated that uh, that gap. And basically, uh, the colleges are subsidizing these dual credit classes to the tune of $1.6 million. And that's a two-year-old number. I mean, that goes back to, I think it was, you know, two-year-old figure on how many credit hours were offered and what the cost was. So that's a, a real concern. And it was a concern that we heard from from several of the college presidents. You know, nobody's saying dual credit's a horrible program. We've got to get rid of it. I think the presidents realize that this is the future and that this is helping uh, students uh, get themselves prepared for college and get themselves some college credits uh, and get a jump start on college. But that cost concern is, is something that uh, the colleges and universities are really trying to wrestle with. Uh, when Chuck Staben, the outgoing president of the University of Idaho, was uh, at the podium, he was asked, how do you think dual credit is affecting your, your, your student body and how is it affecting you know, college attendance rates? And, and his answer, and he said, you know, I may be a contrarian here, but I'm not sure how much of a contrarian he really is. What he was saying is that he doesn't think it's really affecting yeah. the influx of students at the University of Idaho, that the students who are coming in with a lot of dual credits, they were probably going to go to college anyway. They were, you know, they were, you know, you know predisposed. They're, they're good students coming generally from, you know, you know, good households that, you know, where there's, you know, financial backing and, you know, family backing uh, for going to college. So his, you know, his take on it is it's helping students who are going to go to college anyway, and some of these students are going to do a double major or they're going to study abroad. That's all good, but it's not really changing the makeup of students. So, and that's long been a theory and a potential criticism of the proliferation of the dual credit um, program. It's something that we've wondered about and asked about on the podcast it, before. Uh, it feels like a question I've asked so many people over the past yeah. couple of years. And, you know... Do these programs like dual credit, the Opportunity Scholarship, which was a big theme this week, you know, are these programs helping students who are hardwired for college in the first place? Which isn't a bad thing. By that no, itself, by right. no right. means is that is that a bad outcome. But if you're trying to get a post-secondary completion rate to go from 42% to 60%, are these programs the, the golden ticket to get you there? That's a question I keep asking. And, you know, it's obviously a question that's crossed... Uh, President Staben's mind as well. We talked about the Opportunity Scholarship, and that came up a lot this week. Uh, Governor Little's request to boost that Opportunity Scholarship spending from $13.5 million to $20.5 million, a $7 million increase. Every university president um, spoke in favor of increasing that Opportunity Scholarship. Um, when Staben talked about the scholarship, he basically said that the university is going to stick some of its own money on the line here, too. What they're doing right now is they're sending letters to students who they think would get an opportunity scholarship if a funding increase comes through. And they're saying, come to the University of Idaho, even if the opportunity scholarship doesn't come through, we'll cover the difference for that first year out of, our, out of the university's own scholarship fund. So he's kind of challenging the legislature to fund the Opportunity Scholarship and saying, look, we're serious about this. We want these kids on campus. We're willing to, uh, you know, wager our own money, if you will, to, to make sure that these students attend college and, you know, see through, uh, you know, the beginning of their college careers. So 
that was a bit of a twist that we heard. That scholarship's been in the news a lot. Governor Brad Little, as you said, wants to expand it. We've talked about the wait list or the backlog. You looked at those numbers a little bit this week. Mm -hmm. That Uh, came up this week. We've talked about how that was expanded uh, to benefit some adults who have stopped out and are looking to return to school. Uh, Everybody's talking about this scholarship. It's been in the news a lot. I don't see that changing. Yeah, and let's talk about that waitlist math, too, because that was one of the takeaways that I had Friday at at, uh, Education Week. Uh, Matt Freeman, the executive director of the state board, did his presentation on the scholarship proposal before JFAC. And he did some of the math, and he said a $7 million increase, as Little has proposed, that will fund at least 2,000 scholarships because the maximum award is $3,500. The waiting list right now is 3,400 students. So it's hard to say how much of the backlog this $7 million will cover. Obviously won't cover all of it because that wait list is so, is so long compared to you know, what you can get with, uh, with $7 million. Right. And what you have to keep in mind with that $7 million is that not all of that money would go into new scholarships. The for continuing new awards are a priority. So much of this money goes into continuing the scholarships, so that a, a student who gets thirty five hundred dollars freshman year can count on similar yep. awards down yep. the road, which totally makes sense. You don't want to pull the rug out from under students and say, "Surprise!" Yeah, now you're on your own. <laughs> yeah, good, good luck, kid. Yeah. Um, so so much of an emphasis on continuing the scholarships that it's really hard to you know. Yeah, extrapolate and figure out how many new scholarships you would get with the $7 million. So, yeah, the first step in this uh, in this process will go, uh, will happen at JFAC. JFAC will have to decide whether uh, to put the $7 million in, whether they want to tweak that number one way or the other. But I, I think the Opportunity Scholarship is one of the big decision points uh, for JFAC this year because they've heard over and over from the universities that this is an important, uh, yeah, it's an important program, and they've s- seen over and over the numbers that suggest that there's a lot of demand for this uh, scholarship and a lot of unmet demand. So we'll watch and see. I mean, this has been a committee in the past. They've put more money into this uh, scholarship program. It's it's increased from five million to thirteen and a half million just in the past couple of years. So this has been a legislature that's been friendly to the idea. We'll see how friendly they are to. Uh, to Little's specific proposal. One more big topic I want to get to this week. Uh, This was a public opinion survey, almost an annual event at this Mm -hmm. point, uh, from Boise State University. You are our lead reporter uh, on this story. Um, What are the people saying? What's their top priority and how that might relate to what we cover? Well, without a question, they're saying that education is their top priority. That's come up in these uh, Boise State surveys over and over. What Idahoans are saying about the education system is interesting as well. You know, fairly lackluster marks, and we we go into it in much more detail on my blog. So, so look at the numbers there uh, to take a deep dive into the numbers, and you can link to the survey and you can see the numbers in full. But what the researchers found was that you know more than a third of respondents rated Idaho's K through 12 system as only fair. Now, those numbers improve a little bit when these same folks were asked, well, how would you rate your local schools? Yeah. Uh, local schools get a, a better mark, and significantly better marks than the uh, K-12 system as a whole. Uh, the researchers that presented the study on Thursday said that that's not really surprising. Uh, Jeffrey Lyons with BSU drew an analogy that 
no educator is going to like this. Okay, it's, it's his analogy, but I've heard it before, and it's a fair analogy. When researchers ask uh, people about Congress... I was just thinking of this, and I was going to say... Terribly low approval ratings for Congress. But my guy, he's different. But he's my guy is guy. different, right. The yeah. rating for your local congressperson is higher than Congress as a whole. So, no, I'm not comparing your local school principal to, you know, to... But that's a great member of Congress. But that is kind of that kind of local sort of a halo effect sort of a thing that happens in surveys. Same thing happened to a lesser degree when BSU asked people to rate how well the K-12 system is preparing students for life after high school. You know, fairly lackluster marks, a little bit better when they're asked about their local uh, local uh, school system. Pre-K came up and some interesting results I thought on pre-K. what they found is that there's pretty widespread support for increasing funding for pre-K. And when Jeffrey Lyons was talking about that, he said, you know, but that's a pretty easy thing to say. It's pretty easy to say, yeah, let's put more money into, uh, into pre-K. But what they wanted to do then was force respondents to make some choices. And this in, gets interesting. And these are interesting choices. What they found was that about 54, 55% of respondents said, you know what, I want to see us put more money into early education, even if, even if it means higher taxes. I'll pay for it, yeah. That, I thought, was very telling. Um, what I also thought was telling was uh, when respondents were asked, well, would you support early education if it came at the expense of some other education program? Very, uh, very limited support for that. I forget the exact number, but a strong majority of people saying, no, that's not what I'm talking about here. I, I do not want this to become an either or. So support They're looking for, for more pre-K revenue. and some sentiment there for paying for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's an interesting study and it's sort of a snapshot into where Idahoans are, are you know, where Idahoans find themselves right now, not just on education, but on the economy, yeah. on the general state of uh, the direction the state is going, uh, budget, taxes. It's a very far-reaching survey. So it's always an interesting one to see when it comes out. And, and like I say, uh, go to our uh, go to my blog. You can read about the study and you can uh, get the results in detail. We've got a link posted. Yep, and you can always get Kevin's blog on the homepage at idahoednews.org. There's a header. Uh, you can click on that. So his blog is always available through the main homepage at idahoednews.org. That's a big week. Um, Other than education week, the education committees, especially on the House side, were still performing the slow march through the administrative rules review process. We expect things could pick up next week. We saw the first two education bills of the session introduced at the end of this week. We may, perhaps, see the unveiling of the first public school funding formula draft bill, maybe next week, maybe in the Senate. Who knows? We we will just have to wait and see. It's sort of like, you know, waiting for the, the white smoke when, uh, <laughs> new you know, pope. when a new pope is being <laughs> yeah. named. So we will watch it very closely because this is the education. The issue of the year. This year. Yeah. And, yeah, it will be very interesting to see how this thing unfolds, you know, where the bill starts, how it's received in the committee, you know, if it gets to the floor, what sort of, uh, you know, what happens to it on the floor? What sort of debate do we see? Do we see attempts to try to amend the bill, add stuff to the bill? Any number of things can happen. We'll be there to to watch it all unfold. Yeah. Uh, 
really early. I don't feel super comfortable making a prediction about the fate of this thing other than to say, uh, based on the two sort of informational hearings that we've already attended, there's a lot of hard work to be done and a lot of lawmakers that still need to have their comfort level increased. Right, um, and, and that information... More questions than answers. process continues because Senate Education this week... Uh, signaled that they want to have a similar informational session of their own uh, where they kind of dig into the formula and kind of you know take another run at playing with the spreadsheet as, mm-hmm. as they did uh, last week in that joint meeting with the House Education Committee. So uh, lawmakers on these two committees have a big decision ahead of themselves. And, and to their credit, it seems like they're really trying to, to ramp up uh, and try to, you know, you know, get their arms around this issue because it is such an important decision. So, And we're looking at, I would say, upwards of 50, 60 pages for a potential bill. Yeah, I think, and when, that I think Representative itself, Horman said something like 58 pages. Yeah, that in itself, because it references so many sections of existing code, because you have to change calculations and strip out all references to support units and average daily attendance, a complicated intimidating piece of legislation. Yeah, read, um, read all 60 pages, folks. It, it will be on the final. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's going to be... Some work to be done. Rating, yes. Some work to be done. Don't know how it will fare. Um, a lot of questions at this point. More questions than answers. Definitely. Uh, and that goes for me as a member of the media, but I think that also goes for legislators. More questions than answers. Not to say that the answers aren't out there or won't be delivered, uh, but a lot of work to be done. A very tricky, complicated process. And we'll provide answers as soon as we get them as best we can. Yeah, something to look forward to. As always, thank you so much uh, for hanging out with us and joining the Extra Credit Podcast. We have a lot of fun each and every week breaking down this intersection of education policy and education politics. We'll be back next week. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.